0: How this teaching came about. We have two epics in India, the Ramayana and the Mahabharata. Both are historical and also have a literary value. I consider these historical poetic works to be similar to those we have in English literature. Shakespeare's plays for example while based on certain historical figures, also have drama woven into them. Walter Scott's novels are especially historical in their mention of the names of particular kings. The description of the time, period and condition is all true, whereas the heroes and heroines are fictional. Similarly, we see in the Ramayana, Authored by the poet Valmiki, historical figures in Rama, Sita, and Dasharata. Also, Ayodhya, the city in which they lived, did exist. So too, the island called Lanka and the demonic king Ravana. But we also uh, see an underlying meaning conveyed by Valmiki when he presented Ravana as having ten heads. If someone has ten heads and each head thinks in its own way, then you have a person who thinks as though he has ten heads, each one having its own way of thinking. He is therefore a person of great confusion. Ravana was like that. He was a Brahmana and a great devotee of Lord Shiva. However, he did not behave like a brahmana. A brahmana should not rule a kingdom and Ravana did. Furthermore, although he was a devotee, he was also demonic. Thus, Ravana was an embodiment of contradictions. This may be why he was portrayed as having ten heads, an aspect that is purely poetic. Imagine a person having 10 heads. One head is asking for coffee and another head wants cool drinks like fizzy drink and another head wants to go to London. Welcome to disaster life. We also find in these epics a lot of poetry centered on certain historical events. That is why they are called itihasa Meaning, this is how it was. Thus, the Ramayana, authored by Valmiki, and the later the Mahabharata, authored by Vyasa, are both considered to be historical poetry. Mahabharata the fifth Veda. There are four Vedas and the Mahabharata is referred to as the fifth Veda because it is so complete. There is not nearly the amount of information in the Ramayana as there is in the Mahabharata. Any topic you could ask for is there. Dharma, logistics, political, acumen and so on. All of these are beautifully illustrated through the epic's excellent characterizations. Various values are highlighted in the stories by presenting the same person in different moods and situations. Bhima, for instance, stands out as a person with his own moods, proclivities, characteristics, inclinations, capacities, limitations and points of vulnerability. Each of these aspects is mentioned when characterising any given hero. In this way the five Pandavas and the hundred sons of dhritarashtra from Duryodhana downward all are presented individually as characters in their own right. Vyasa, the author, Vyasa is considered to be a principal link in the Vedic teaching tradition. He is, therefore, an important figure. Beginning from Lord Narayana all the way down to our own teachers, there is a live tradition in which Vyasa is the most important historical connecting link. The Parampara, are lineage of the teachers of Brahma Vidya, is presented in the following verse. It literally translates into I remain as one who always salutes Narayana, Brahma, Vashishta, Shakti, his son Parashara, Vyasa, Shuka, the great Gaudapada, Govinda, the most exalted among the yogis, his disciple. Shankaracharya, Shankara's disciples, padmapada Hastamalaka, Totaka, and the author of the Vartikas, and our other teachers. Vyasa is also called Veda Vyasa because it was he who edited, classified and codified all the mantras of the Vedas. He grouped them into four and made them available to the future generations by making one family responsible for maintaining one shaka branch. We should be thankful to Vyasa for classifying and editing so that we are learning this amazing, amazing literatures today and Vedas as they are today. To commit all four Vedas to memory is not realistic. It requires 12 years and a bright mind to commit even one entire shaka branch to memory. A young boy in his eighth eighth year goes to a teacher and spends his next 12 years doing this. Imagine 12 years. To memorize four Vedas then would be would mean becoming a grandfather by the time the work is completed. Therefore Vyasa made it easy. A particular family maintains one branch of the Veda throughout the generations. In this way the four Vedas have come down to us in their original form through an unbroken chain of oral tradition. Because Vyasa was responsible for handing over the Vedas to posterity, he became to be known as Veda Vyasa. Gita's Prayer of Invocation Although the Bhagavad Gita is presented by Vyasa in the middle of the Mahabharata, it is an independent work actually. Every work begins with a prayer in recognition that any successful undertaking involves three important factors, effort, time and the unknown factor, effort, prayatna, time, kala, and the unknown factor, daiva. We ourselves are capable of providing the effort and we can also wait out. The time it takes for the result to come. Success or failure, however, is accounted for by the third factor, the unknown factor, daiva. Therefore, we cannot fail to take daiva into account. Daiva is there whether you take it into account. In spite of all your efforts and waiting, You do not always get what you want. There seems then to be some unknown factor over which you have no control. You may call it chance or luck, but we call it Deva here, grace. Grace is nothing but karma phala. It is a graceful way of referring to karma phala. It is something you earn by prayer. It is not an arbitrary decision on the part of God. Otherwise, God would be just another autocrat who does, who goes about distributing packets of grace every morning and missing us more times than not. We do not see the connection between grace and our actions because we do not know which action produces the grace. Although it is the result of prayer, we have no direct knowledge of whether it is cumulative or the result of one single prayer. All we know is that there is a plus factor as well as a minus factor with reference to the result of our actions called karma. Thus we find that in spite of all our efforts, there is something else which makes the difference between success and failure, that is the Daiva, the unknown factor. Astrology tries to unfold a pattern in your life that can be projected from your horoscope. Your birth is an event, a visible event that inaugurates your life. An event occurs in particular place, at a particular time, and is a link in the whole process. If there is a pattern, if there is destiny, then this event is the inaugural event from which the destiny would unfold itself. You do not know what the pattern of destiny is, but you do know that your birth and event took place at a given time. Now suppose there is another pattern that is projectable. This projectable pattern and the pattern unknown to you are connected. How? When you are born, the constellations and planets are in a particular configuration. Because each planet has its own orbit and its own speed, you can find patterns of the horoscope which are projectable to any future time by observing people's lives relationships can be seen between the heavenly patterns and the events in a person's life recurrences of specific events in the lives of people under certain planetary configurations give rise to rules of astrological prediction the planets do not interfere with your life your actions in the past and present do According to the Shastra, astrology is only a predictive discipline. Indian astrology is useful in that it gives you a basis for specific prayers to neutralize the negative karmas in term of undesirable situations unfolding in this life and to enhance the results of positive karmas in term of desirable situations. Daiva, the third unknown factor, a factor in which you can neutralize the results already created either in this life or previously, is done through prayer. So for any undertaking, the third factor, Daiva, is invoked, which is why before beginning the study of any discipline of knowledge, we invoke the Lord through a prayer. One step ahead, we invoke Lord in everything we do, be it a business, be it uh, uh, some occasion, be it like sad occasions or happy occasions or when we start something new, buy a car, we always invoke and give our respect to the Deva. The Gita coming in the middle of the Mahabharata does not have a prayer as such, although Vyasa did invoke the unknown factor in the form of prayer at the beginning of the epic itself. Because of the importance of the message of the Gita, it is described as a pendant jewel in the midst of the Mahabharata. Therefore, there should be a prayer for the Gita also. Prayer can be in different forms, it can be mental, it can be in so many words or it can be suggested by one word. Here we have a suggestive prayer in the narrator's sentence, Tritrashtra Uvacha. The word Tritrashtra is much more than the name of the blind old man seated in his place wanting to know what had happened in the battlefield. Dhrita means is sustained and Rashtra means the entire world. Tritrashtra then means the one by whom the entire world is sustained. And who is that? The Lord. The entire world is sustained by Ishvara. By beginning the Gita with the words Dritrashtra Vacha, two purposes are served. The Lord is invoked by the word, which is a kind of prayer and the word Uvacha indicates the narration of the Gita was about to begin. The Gita opens with the blind king Dhritarashtra sitting in his palace with his companion Sanjaya, a minister who was blessed by Vyasa with an extraordinary audiovisual visual capacity. He could hear what was happening far away. He had a mind like a radio that could pick up sounds from a distance. He could also see situations and events beyond the frontiers of human eyesight. Knowing that Sanjaya had these psychic powers, the blind dhritarashtra asked Sanjaya what happened on the battlefield between my sons and the Pandavas. With this extensive introduction, we will now begin the Gita verses. Chapter 1 and the first 10 verses of Chapter 2 are actually a continuation of the Mahabharata and thereby provide the context in which the dialogue between Krishna and Arjuna took place. Although we are only interested in Krishna's teaching, which does not begin until the 11th verse of Chapter 2, it is important to understand the condition of Arjuna's mind that led him to ask Krishna to teach him. Therefore, these contextual verses will be analyzed in some detail. We don't want to miss the beginning of the movie and watch only the climax, aren't we? Let's get started. Tighten your seatbelts. It's going to be interesting. Cheers